Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you are. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Shorts TV Chief Executive Carter Pilcher, offering his take on Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman's buzzy premium mobile short form video service Quibi, which launches in the US and Canada today. But first, Thomas Day, President and Chief Executive of About Corporate Finance Investment Bank, a company that's been prolific in orchestrating some of the biggest transactions in the independent production sector in the past decade. ACF helped engineer a string of ITV Studios acquisitions, including Left Field Entertainment, Think Factory Media, Gurney Productions and The Garden, as well as Sony buying Left Bank Pictures, Sky acquiring Love Productions, the BBC buying out Top Gear and Lionsgate taking over Pilgrim Studios. More recently, ACF was appointed by Nordic Entertainment Group to handle the sale of its unscripted business, at least until the coronavirus pandemic hit and the company pressed pause on that process. Day, however, remains upbeat about the prospects for the TV production sector, despite the ongoing crisis. He does see some companies going to the wall and big differences in the challenges facing smaller players versus the larger consolidated groups, but overall believes there are a number of steps businesses can be taking right now to mitigate the impact. C21's Ed Waller asked him to begin by offering his perspective on how independents are coping. Well, I think the first thing is that the lack of human contact is absolutely critical to production. So I think across the board, they have seen a slew of productions be paused or cancelled. And I certainly have seen a mixed reaction from the broadcasters and the networks from people being very understanding and offering to honour short-term cost obligations through to complete denial and non-acceptance and pushing all of that risk onto the production company. So I think what's what's been consistent is a significant stop in production. I think what's been different is how the actual commissioners have been dealing with it. Has there been any big difference in the way that the industry has been impacted in the US or the UK or other parts of Europe? No, I think it's been pretty consistent. I mean, I I, I, I think there are people who have still talked about certain productions moving forward. And, and one of the interesting things which has come out is it depends on the point of production. So I certainly know that people who have done the filming and are now moving into the editing and the post, people have been quite innovative and gone home and kind of carried on kind of putting the shows together. So I think... In terms of US and UK, no, I think, I think it's more commissioner-based or, or network-based that there's been very specific positive and negative reactions in both countries. Are we getting to the point, or will we soon get to the point, where some production companies will have to cease operation? We've already seen some laying off staff. I think whenever there is a seismic shock to the financial world to the creative world to businesses, there's always going to be a bunch of reactions from those companies. And I think there are a bunch of companies that, you know, haven't had any safety nets or any kind of fat in, you know, to protect them from these sudden shocks. And those are the companies that will fold because they've been trading pretty close to the edge. Maybe they're not in the best of health and they're not ready for this type of thing. And so I definitely expect to see a number of businesses fail. 
in the coming months. I think then what you're going to see is, I mean, this industry is a very flexible industry and the very nature of what they do is based upon huge scaling up and huge scaling down of operations when they enter into production. So the vast majority of the production groups have this huge influx in and out of people. So I think they're actually probably better placed to deal with this sudden change. And as we've seen right across the board, especially in the UK press, it's actually the freelancers who take the impact because they're the ones that suddenly get cut right in the middle of a production. But I think the companies themselves, I think, are pretty versatile. And I'd be quite surprised if the vast majority of them can't react to that. The exception, I would say, is, is, is in the larger consolidators and the bigger entities. I think the smaller entities can certainly flex their sort of cost base. What about the, um, the fat that you talked about just now? Are you talking about sort of um, having a, 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 a nest egg of, of rights that they can lean on? Because I, we're hearing from distributors uh, that ready-made uh, shows are in very high demand. So those, those rights would be very valuable right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's happening is if you're a network or a channel or you're a distributor, right now all of your new projects have gone on hold or you know, your development discussions have gone on hold until the foreseeable future. So that must create an immediate interest in finished programming that previously either was made and didn't have a huge circulation or is just being released. So it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me at all that there is going to be some quite lucrative deals to be had, certainly in the finished programming space. So I would expect that program to suddenly be a lot more attractive and travel a lot further and generate a lot more money. How about the the value of indies? Because obviously this is something very uh, central to your business, um, buying and selling and merging and the whole takeovers market. How how do you think the pandemic has actually impacted the the M&A market for producers and distributors? Well, the short-term impact is running into a brick wall. We had a number of transactions that were moving forward, and I think it was quite widely reported. For instance, the Nent Group in, in, in the Nordic regions had appointed us to handle their sale of their unscripted division. And whenever you enter a sale discussion, the sort of integrity of the, the current numbers, the deliverability of the current numbers are a discussion and a focal point. So when you have a whole bunch of productions that suddenly cease, there's going to be a hole in those numbers, which is immediately going to impact the numbers you're going to be delivering and it's going to impact the value because, as is widely reported, a lot of these valuations are on multiples of EBITDA or profit. So that's the short-term impact is immediately your numbers are coming under question. At the same time, a double whammy is that most of your buyers are suddenly dealing with an unprecedented situation where they're trying to control their own business and understand the impact on their own business. And as a lot of these deals are done sort of production group to production group, both entities suddenly have this shock. So I think that the immediate reaction is absolutely to cease all conversations. And that's certainly what we've seen across the board. But I think that the the sort of future is not bleak because one thing that's sure is that this is a temporary blip in these companies' life cycle. And and one of the things we've certainly reached out to a number of buyers and have had, had conversations with them, and we're trying to come up with innovative deal structures that deal with this. So 
they don't push all the risk onto the buyer, but don't give the seller an underpriced sale. What can you tell us about the, those deal structures? Because they sound very fascinating. So there's two, there's two approaches that we've discussed with buyers. One approach is to look at the period of the sort of coronavirus impact and treat that as an exceptional cost. So effectively, you're adjusting the current year profits and saying, let's look at the forecast profits, let's look at what we were tracking to hit, and then let's look at the impact of the virus and say, you know, one month, two months of the trading was knocked out, but we can add that back as a normalization. So that's one approach, which is to actually treat the cost of this as a normalization. Now, these conversations are theoretical at the moment because clearly we haven't even begun to get to the end of this period. So we can't quantify the full value of the impact. But what I've said to buyers, and and this has certainly been well received, is they don't want to wait 12 to 18 months to do M&A and to buy companies. And in many ways, they're gonna have a hole in their results which they need to plug. And and an acquisition is a very good way to do that. So they definitely want to work out ways. They're they're cooperative. Rather than being combative and trying to get the best price, they're very interested in conversations that do that. The second structure which we've talked to people is if your profits have dropped from 6 million to 4 million in 2020, let's base a, a deal off the 4 million profits that are delivered but then what we should do is revalue the company in 2021 and we'll do what's called a catch-up payment where we will revalue that equity based upon the 21 results. So if you come back up to 6 million, you're getting the equivalent deal that you would have got if you sold at 6 million. So I think there are two structures we've been talking to and we've received very you know, wide, wide support for, for this approach. Taking a longer term view, do you think that people would become more interested in buying Indies once? I mean, because obviously prices are down suddenly, you know, when that happens, people suddenly get a bit interested. Do you think there's, although the short term is it's hit a wall, as you said, but in the medium and long term, it's actually might stimulate the market? I think it's the types of buyers. I think there have always been and will always be what I consider value buyers who are very, very interested in driving down the price of acquisitions. And they're usually backed by quite aggressive private equity firms that look for distressed assets. And certainly we have had a number of conversations with people in that regard who are opening up their checkbooks and looking for opportunities. So there will, there will always be an element of value buyers who come out when there is a calamity. I think the vast majority of buyers actually don't take that approach and they're more interested in what they can do with the company and the creators and the quality of the uh, assets rather than the cost of the acquisition. So I, I don't think you get a stimulation to the market. I think you get a shift in the type of buyers. And as far as the buyers are concerned, obviously they come in different stripes. You've got industry groups, as you say, you've got the VCs. Are they being impacted in terms of their appetite for M&A in different ways? Yes, completely. I mean, this is a worldwide sort of impact across everybody. And 
certainly this is you know some of the areas we've been looking at if you think about the consolidators they've gone out and bought a bunch of companies and they now you know most of them finance that through a mixture of private equity capital markets and bank debt so right now all of these entities are breaching their covenants with the banks so the banks have some quite strict measures around the trading performance of these groups and if there is a problem they breach a covenant and breaching a covenant isn't doesn't mean that you have to replay pay the money to the bank but it certainly means you have to pick the phone up and one of the things we're looking at at the moment and one of the things we're advising people is to take a proactive response don't wait until your finance director submits a report and they contact you. Contact the bank and say to them, we're going to do this thing. We're going to breach these covenants. And I think at the moment, they'll find that there's a very understanding approach from the banks. But what, what you don't want to do is breach the covenant and technically have the loan in default and then be on a sort of weak foot. What would be good is to get in front of these things and actually speak to the lenders. So. At a high level, you know, we're seeing that happen. And certainly, I think, you know, it was publicized that all three media pulled out of the Red Arrow transaction. And I think that was a good example where people were dealing with their own issues rather than looking at acquisitions. So I think right from large companies down to small companies, there's going to be a lot of internal gazing rather than external. What did you mean when you mentioned earlier that the uh, the bigger companies will be more impacted and less able to react than the little companies? It's it's pretty much what I'm we're speaking about here, which is to say that these larger companies have bigger overhead structures. They have a lot more financing obligations attached to them, banks, investors, capital markets. When, when companies default, it kind of has a much more visible impact when you're being reported on by 20 analysts. I think when you're a smaller company, it's all less visible and you can pick up the phone, go and have lunch with your branch manager and say, look, this is a short term blip and it can be agreed in a much more kind of um, collegiate fashion. I think when it's published on the FTSE 100 and everyone's forming a view, I think the impact can be a lot more volatile. As well as independent producers, we've seen SVOD companies like Hook in Asia are going into liquidation and, and blaming the, uh, the virus pandemic and the rising prices of ready-made shows. Uh, do you think you're going to see more of that? I think one of the things that happened in the financial crisis in 2008 is everybody kitchen sinked all their problems, right? They chucked it into the sink, right? And I think right now, a lot of people are gonna blame the, the sort of coronavirus for all of the ills in their companies, right? So I certainly think it's, it's a point in time where people can bow out without receiving any surprise. And I think there will be a lot of that. I think there will be a lot of companies that were already on a uneven footing and this final jolt is enough to send them over the edge but i think they already had a lot of underlying conditions that meant this was probably going to be the end anyway so i don't you know i, I kind of think there is a little bit of blame game going on here do you think we're going to see sort of hyperinflation in ready-made shows and that might impact um, other companies that rely on them i mean i i think what should happen and I don't know if it will happen, is that people will be less willing to give exclusivity across content. I think it would make a lot more sense that 
the content is, is widely spread rather than trying to tie the deals because then I think that could drive up pricing to the point where only the very biggest wallets can afford it. And I think right now people need to practice kind of calmness and, and, and that's, that's effectively a form of price gouging, isn't it? Just to sort of start massively increasing the cost. So I don't think so. I, I, don't, think, I don't think the period of time is going to be long enough. I think, you know, if you think about the production cycle of a good scripted show, it can be how many, what, years in the making? So I, I, I do think that the impact is probably short term. I think the bigger impact is on the unscripted short term because that has a shorter cycle of production to air. But I think on the, on the rest of the stuff, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think that by the time we kind of get through the worst of this and get back to work, you know, there's going to be a two, three month kind of blip in the production cycle. And I don't, don't think that would be enough to change the course of pricing. Do you think the the cancellation of lots of industry events such as MIP and Series Mania, how's that going to impact the distribution companies? Because obviously that's where they normally buy and sell their, their rights. I think that the industry has long passed the point of waiting for the markets to sell content. And I think that what this is going to do is prove that point that you can go on people's websites and review their projects and their ideas. You can, you know, there's so much technology that exists. I, I kind of think people are just going to be aware that the markets were more about reestablishing contact, about discussing kind of ideas. All of these things can be done remotely. So I, I really think that the markets themselves have become slightly different and they're no longer just about buying and selling shows. Certainly for us, I mean, for us, it's just a, there's a great benefit for human contact, but it's rarely about initiating things now. It's more about continuing things. So my kind of secret guess is that I think people will find that they're just as productive without going to the markets. And I don't know what you think, but I I certainly think there's been a ramp up in events. I mean, it seems to me like they're, 12 months of the year, there's three events a week, you know, and certainly I I think what that might do is prove the point that people can actually be just as effective using technology. And just lastly, uh, Thomas, what should producers and distribution companies be doing right now to to weather the storm, would you say? I think think the main thing is communication. We at ACF have been speaking to a number of funds and talk to them about short-term funding for these entities. Because I think you're going to find that there are three or four groups of companies. There's those that we spoke about that were pretty fragile to begin with, and this jolt sends them straight down you know, into insolvency. You know, they can't be helped. They, they were running in an unhealthy way, and as soon as the market hit them, they fell over. There's going to be the next batch of companies, which are very good companies, who are just running into cash flow issues. And I think rather than just sort of going into a downward spiral and cutting all your staff and cutting all your shows, I think that actually having conversations, and we've been speaking to a bunch of investors who do effectively like a micro-lend so talking about two to three million cash injection for a small equity stake, I think actually getting some short-term equity funding and keeping a sort of brave face is going to be more productive than 
trying to slash everything down to its minimum and then hoping to survive it in a much sort of on pause state. I think if you do that, you're not going to be in a very good shape when you come out the other side. So I certainly think being reactive to this situation, not just allowing your cash reserves to burn and while you cut more and more staff will mean you're in better shape when you come out the other side. And then I think the third thing is just reaching out and communicating with all people around the business. I think everyone is mindful that this is you know, a one-off event that has a certain time horizon. And apart from the value buyers, I think everyone's willing to help. So it's really about communicating, reaching out and taking a proactive strategy to sort of help your company through this period. ACF Investment Bank President and CEO Thomas Day speaking with Ed Waller. While plenty of companies are closing down or running into financial difficulties right now, as we just heard, Asian streaming service Hook among them, others like Netflix and Disney Plus are seeing a definite uptick in business. But former Walt Disney Studios chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg and ex-Hewlett-Packard CEO Meg Whitman are making a big bet with the launch of Quibi today. The mobile-centric premium short-form video service has gone live in the US and Canada, having pledged to spend a billion dollars on content in its first year for 175 original series from a huge cast of Hollywood talent including Steven Spielberg, Guillermo del Toro, Jennifer Lopez, Chrissy Teigen, Reese Witherspoon and many more. Quibi raised $1.75 billion in funding prior to its launch, its latest tranche coming just last month, raising eyebrows in many places about how the firm can hope to succeed, charging customers up to $7.99 a month for access to series shot with its special turnstile viewing in mind, especially when its patent claims to such technology are already being challenged. Inigo Alexander spoke with Carter Pilcher, CEO of Shorts TV, a US-based network that's been dedicated to the short-form entertainment space for the past decade, to get his perspective on Quibi's chances of success. Quibi is, is an amazing investment. You know, Jeffrey uh, Katzenberg and Meg Whitman have raised almost $2 billion for a startup. And that's taking it from ground zero to $2 billion. So, so uh, $1.75 billion, which is just kind of one of those things that is phenomenal. And I think they're, they're producing something that in many ways is, is going, to be, going to be amazing. They've got half of Hollywood, maybe more than half of Hollywood, involved in making very short 10-minute shorts for them. They've got big director Steven Spielberg is making some 10-minute some shorts. There's a whole, whole group of, of actors, almost every big actor, every big director is making something, some 10 minute either series or some of their bigger tentpole uh, movies that are in 90 minute movies in 10 minute bites. So I, I think in, the, in terms of the content and, and uh, that kind of thing, they're really, and especially with being able to invest uh, nearly a billion over the first year in content is something that is, that is unheard of. And in that sense, it's a, an amazing investment, amazing uh, step forward. I, I think, you know, it takes Hollywood, if you will, executives, people who are removed from the day-to-day grind of life. It maybe takes them a little longer to catch on to what's going on in the real world. But I think Quibi is, is one of those things that is it's such a big investment. It is an absolute imprimatur that, you know, a stamp that the world of content is really changing and it's moving 
beyond and into mobiles. And that's never happened before. And do you think that change, that shift towards content on the go, and as you say, mobile content, how do you think that's going to reflect with the production of short form content? Do you think Quibi is going to be the only short form player that's going to emerge? To the question, do I think Quibi is the only short form player that's going to emerge? I think absolutely not. The question, what kind of effect is it going to have? I think it's going to have an enormous effect. And and I think Quibi is more of a uh, a tell, if you will, a, a sign that Hollywood is ready to put money up. They did this time. They did it through Jeffrey, but they're they're well ready to put money up. Really interested in short content. Want to figure out what happens, how it works, because they can see an entire generation that is spending all their all their time on shorts. But of course, you know, Quibi wasn't the first. Um, YouTube, who we just learned a few months ago, made $15 billion in advertising last year, has to be the forerunner and uh, for video content and the absolute most successful platform on the face of the earth in terms of short content. But you can look across at Asia, TikTok, which is an amazing platform too, slightly different than YouTube. It's uh, it's it's way shorter, uh, but that is uh, is on fire as a platform. It's very very popular. Its uh, parent company is worth seventy five billion dollars, but at least it was before all this um, excitement with with the virus. So I and I think every there are a number of companies that are really moving into shorts and and into premium short content. As you know, we've been doing short form content, short films primarily for the last fifteen years, and and it's taken a long time for that for our what we've learned, what we've done to, uh, there to start becoming something that people are aware of. But we we are seeing even on our services in the United States fast increases and uh, in terms of the amount of time people spend on our TV channel, the amount of time people spend on the apps that are in testing, our box office is up for the shorts, the Oscar nominated shorts that we put in theaters every year. I think that every platform is seeing really an entire generation and their parents and some of their friends and family that are starting to live in this world of short form entertainment. And it's a different world than long form entertainment. And it's in some ways, it's more exciting. It's certainly as exciting. And so Quibi is a great signal that we're jumping into this new world with with both feet. And how do you think that's going to be able to reflect in the number of subscribers? Obviously, there are a lot of new uh, newcomers to the streaming world this year, you know, Disney+, Plus, Apple TV+, Plus, and they were very well received once they launched. How do you think Quibi's going to fare in the first uh, three to six months of its launch? So I, I'm very excited about Quibi. I think it's an amazing platform and an amazing investment. But with all investments and experiments... I think there's some things that we that we're scratching our our chin about a little bit just as we try to consider it. You know, I think Quibi Quibi is giving themselves so they have uh, announced a very high price point for their service at 4.99 with ads, 7.99 in the US without ads. That's that's crazy expensive compared it's it's as expensive as Disney Plus. It's approaching Netflix, but the good news is they decided to give it away for free for three months. And I think uh, if they were giving their service away for free and it was ad supported, it would probably be one of the most popular services out there. I think, but I think their first 90 days are going to be something incredible. I would say, you know, Disney plus did more than 20 uh, million paying subscribers. They did about 19 million paying subscribers in the first two months 
I bet Quibi in their first two months does at least 10 million free subscribers and maybe more. Um, what, what are your thoughts on Quibi's business model going into it? You've mentioned that they've channeled a lot of money into the, into the service before the launch. They've got a lot of Hollywood names on, on, on board as well. What, what are your uh, thoughts so, behind their business model? So I, I think, first of all, as I said, I think they've done some things really right. You know, getting all of Hollywood to do shorts is fantastic. And it's amazing and people are going to love it. I think that is, you know, if nothing else comes out of this project, then that, that is fantastic. But I think there are some things they've done, you know, that I think are wrong. And I'll tell you about those. And then there are some things that I think bear watching. And, and by that, I mean, there are serious problems that maybe could be fatal. But first, I think that, that they've, in terms of, of their business model, uh, I think their prices are too high. Free is fabulous, but when you get to $4.99 and $7.99, that starts to be something that is really expensive for people when they're looking at managing a bunch of, a bunch of subscriptions. I, I think, secondly, they have a stated def- demographic of 25 to 35-year-olds that they say are on the go. Well, one thing I do, I'm an American. One thing I do know about America is that 25 to 35 year olds, except maybe in New York, when they're on the go, they're in their car. And if they're watching Quibi in their car, they're going to be dead. I mean, they're going to have an accident. And I think that's a bad, bad thing. You know, I think that's, they're not going to be watching Quibi in their car. Secondly, I, I think that they've said uh, that they're always on their phones, but 30 and 35-year-olds really are not the people that we see on their phones all the time. We're running this test with DirecTV in the United States, and we see, we've been doing this with our subscribers, 500 subscribers on our, our DirecTV platform. They've signed on to our, our Apple uh, iOS app. And they've been watching us uh, all the time. And, and we see that they're a much younger group that are on the phones than, than are watching short content on, on television. So in a country like America, where you have a ton of TVs, I think they're going to, when it's free, it's going to skew much younger. They're not going to skew to 25 to 35. So I think they've picked the wrong demographic. I think their service costs too high and their content costs are really high. Uh, one of the problems using stars is and and this technology that's now being they're being sued over by an Israeli company called Turnstile, where you turn it and look different at different um, you know you get a different picture when you look at it in landscape and then in portrait you get a, a different film really that creates some inherent costs in their production model in addition to the stars. They have to basically film it twice. They have to edit it twice. They have to stream it twice. My view is that on the content, they're saying they're going to spend a billion dollars a year. If they do, they're going to be in what I call a golden cage. It's going to be fabulous, but they're going to never be able with this turnstile thing and filming everything twice. They're going to really have trouble breaking out of it and making content that is less expensive. So all of their content suddenly is going to become really expensive. And and in the things that we're watching over the long term, I think as we look at their model and we've our analysts have run their their model several times just to see if there's anything we can learn from it. And I think one of the big concerns we have is that they run out of money in 2021 if they stick to the things that they've said they're going to stick to. And, and that to me is 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 breathtaking to think that you can raise almost two billion dollars, but your business model needs more cash, like at least a billion and a half and maybe two or three early in 2021, a year after you launch. 
So th those are things that we're watching. Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman are two of the smartest people on earth in terms of entertainment. They are certainly able. They've said they're going to pivot if they see a better opportunity. Maybe they will take up ballet. They're going to be pivoting so much. But I, I think that they are doing something bravely. And for that, we really salute them. And I, I think I'm hopeful that they will find a way forward and make it work. But I think that they've built in some, some traps for themselves. Carter Pilcher from Shorts TV talking to Inigo Alexander about the launch of Quibi today. That's all for this episode. Remember, if you'd like to share your story of coping with COVID-19 with the international TV industry, email us at press at c21media.net. There'll be more from us tomorrow, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. 